Good morning, home cooks and uh, seekers of the delicious. <laughs> How's that one? Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we're bringing to you today two of the hottest new cookbooks around. Uh, the first one is one just about every prize in the books, and uh, it, it's a wonderful book. If you're wondering about what flavor is, uh, this is for you. It's not just a simple answer. It's a whole book written by Nick Sharma, who we're going to be talking to, called The Flavor Equation. Yeah, you, start, you start this book. You won't put it down until it's over. Exactly. You, you, you'll have to break off to cook dinner, but then you'll be right back at it. <laughs> so here, here's to Nick. Nick Sharma. I'm so glad he was on the program. Well, it's been since 2018 since the last time we talked to Nick Sharma, but he's been very busy, as uh, you, you can tell if you looked at this gorgeous book, The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained, which contains more than 100 essential recipes, and it's so packed full that we're going to only be able to skirt the surface of, of this. Congratulations, uh, Nick. You've won just about every award imaginable for this book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on today. Well, yeah. I, I uh, tweeted you telling me how hard it was to get a review copy because everybody wanted it. <laughs> they finally got more in, but um, anyhow. Um, I, I was so thrilled to see that you had a dedication to our dear friend Floyd Cardo's. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Yeah. He's such Would a special you... person that we've oh, lost. Exactly. Um, we, indeed... we, uh, we, we just had somebody on who who was a worshipper of Floyd, too. Who was that? Um, it was um, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I can't remember uh, who now. Um, well, oh, I know what. We're probably talking to um, uh, Ori from... Um, Burl up in barrel. They have. That's, did that's you know the? Do you know the story about um, his masala mixes? Uh, the one I just got some that his wife, that Floyd's wife, sent me. Is, is it from from um, uh, burlap and barrel? Yes, that that is correct. Yeah, it's from burlap. Because this, okay. yeah, I mean his his widow, I mean worked on that. I mean they hand mm-hmm. blended mm-hmm. those things amazing well anyhow so um i said there's a lot in this book and, and i mean there's a lot in this book uh, i wanted to start off by congratulating you on the gorgeous photographs how did you Thank get you. to be such an accomplished photographer <laughs> practice looking at all my mistakes and getting critiqued yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was his job right i mean this is your profession right now he's a molecular biologist by profession. Yeah, I didn't. I did not start out as a photographer. No, you're a molecular biologist, mm-hmm. um, and this is a, not that far uh, a venture away from the kinds of things that you dealt with in science, right? True. Um, this kind of takes it back to um, kind of my roots, I guess, in uh, what I was actually trained to do and then tying it in what I decided to do in life. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I want to mention, by the way, that a very popular um, blog is the Brown Table, and people should check that out on an ongoing basis because you have so much information in there and good recipes. Thank you. Yep. Um, back to your photography. Now, what section of this book is it? You explained about composing your your your, uh, f- your the food for photography for for your mm-hmm. photograph your photos. I do, yeah, and well, well, you know, I, I mean, I studied painting um, as a graduate student, and it's it's very much like composing, and also I'm an art historian, much like composing a, a painting. Very much so. That's very, very true. Because you have to take into account so many things, from composition to the colors, how everything complements each other or how it doesn't, and it really makes you think. Now, 
let's just talk about this flavor equation. I mean, if you're very specific about it. That's the scientist in you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what are the components of this flavor equation? Sure. So when I look at flavor, I think of it as a much more holistic um, beast, so to speak. It's, you know, we always talk about aroma and taste because those are the more tangible things in cooking, but a lot of the other elements go into it and and what we perceive as flavor. And for that, to me, it is our emotions, our memories, you know, the things that we see through our sight, the sound that food makes when you're cooking and when you eat it, the textures or the mouthfeel of food, that's so important again because that actually brings everything together, affects how we perceive, you know, all these different elements. And so for me, that's what I call the flavor equation. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you to kind of walk us through some of these. Some of them are obvious, and many of them are not, actually. Um, the, the, the emotion one I've experienced firsthand, um, I mean, there's a dish that um, I actually uh, did a brunch, and, and I, I got the flu, and, and I was sick as a dog, and I've never been able to make that dish since. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing to do with my flu, but you know. And then there's one that was what we were having for dinner, um, the the uh, night that we got the call that Peter's father had died. Okay. And and I can't make that either. So uh, it's a very real phenomenon. Mhm. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's one of the things that the way our brain stores information is often things are tied to memories and. Um, you know, it's fascinating that we, a lot of the times, especially now we're in this pandemic, and a lot of times I find myself reaching out to foods that I loved eating as a kid and, you know, gave me some sort of comfort or like a feel-good feeling. And um, those are the dishes I've actually found myself turning to a lot during the pandemic. Um, it's It's just such a fascinating thing. It's because something that... Uh, as a food writer, we're always taught to write about our food and connect it to a story, and so there are emotions and memories wrapped up in there. And I think when it comes to the actual process of cooking, I find it really interesting that it's not discussed as much. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, um, your, your total thing is emotion, sight, sound, mouth, feel, aroma, and taste equals flavor. Um, and we we should kind of just walk through those. I mean, the emotional part is something most people don't think about. Uh, sight is it reminded me very much your section on sight. Everybody knows this expression: we first eat with our eyes. But yeah. I recall um, way back, I can't remember what it was, um, but we were at the, um, at the Fat Duck, and and Heston yeah. was running us through. Um, these uh, just little exercises, like uh, blindfolded, holding our nose so we couldn't smell, tasting mm-hmm. something as common mm-hmm. as an apple, and we couldn't identify it. Yeah. Because I had no sight, and I had no smell. Mm-hmm. So what was left that I should have been able to um, tell it was an apple? Well, the texture. Um, you know, you, it's it's not the easiest way to go about it, but texture is such an important visceral tool in food because you can t- feel the texture of food through your hands and also your mouth. Mm-hmm. And that's a, such an important gift. And one of the things that I did when researching for this book, I spoke to people who had lost a sense. So if they had lost their sight, if they had, you know, some of them had turned blind, or if um, they were deaf and they couldn't hear. And it was really fascinating just to hear how they started um, or rather paid attention to the different aspects of cooking and food. Um, there was um, a gentleman that I spoke to who had lost a sense of sight, and he told me that he could tell the sound of, um, he could tell the temperature of water, whether it was hot or cold, depending on the sound it made when it dropped from the faucet. And I thought that was really fascinating. Because That's interesting. It doesn't yeah. make sense because the density of water does change with temperature. And the fact that he was able to tell how warm or cool it was just based on the drip from the faucet, that blew my mind away. 
Well, you know, when I mentioned Heston. I, I never found out if it ever worked. He was setting up um, his restaurant when it was still his restaurant, and he was still there mm-hmm. in Bray, uh, so that he could control all these different elements of uh, flavor and experience of eating. I okay. don't know if that ever got anywhere. It's. I think he's doing a lot of work with Charles Spence at Oxford. Who, yeah, he um, did. Yeah, and uh, I know they've published research together, and a lot of actually Charles Spence's work is cited in my book because that's the foundation for some of these important elements. He's done some amazing work on flavor. Yeah, he's a very bright guy. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. He's a little off the off the charts right now. <laughs> I don't know in France. But anyhow, um, this we probably never think about the uh, the colors of food the way you've presented it and it gives me an opportunity to mention you have all these kind of quirky charts <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which is fun i mean you have here the table of common food pigments <laughs> it's like whoever thought of this right through uh, yeah, so one of the things I really wanted to do with this book, because it's such an information-heavy book, because it's science-based, and it's a cookbook at the end of the day. I want people to have fun. Yes. Uh, what was the best way to make something that is so information, like rich in information? How do you make it easy and fun to digest? So I decided we would have illustrations and um, a lot of charts and tables, because I found that, that as an extremely easy tool to study when I was in school. And I figured people would, you know, remember information much easily if I presented it that way. So one of the things mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do was present, um, you know, the pigments that we commonly encounter in food. Um, instead of going to all the chemical structures, because no one's going to really care about that. I mean, the average person won't. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've read all those books, and I never get anywhere with them. I really don't. <laughs> right. And so (laughs) I thought the best way to do it was to make a colorful table and show people, hey, this is what it is really at the end of the day, and this is the relevant information to you as a cook. You know, you need to know whether it's soluble in water or whether it's soluble in fat, and then where is it found, in which food. And uh, that's the way I decided to approach everything in this book is kind of approach it from if I were going to take a test, this is how I would cram information and memorize, but also this is what would make it fun and attractive. Right. I mean, I liked your your little chart about um, taste of colors and and shapes. Because uh, I have um, something called synesthesia. Do you know about that? Uh huh. I do. Yeah, well, I have that, and for years I've struggled with math because I had the numbers were colors and, and, and genders and things. It was pretty awful. At the end, I'm 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 not very good at math, but anyhow, I'm so. But this. This really gets your attention right away, all these, as I call them, quirky charts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have like a whole chart of egg proteins. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I wanted to do something where instead of really like going on and on about like how proteins denature and how they work, you know, I wanted to do a little bit of that, but I really wanted to use certain examples that people were using every day in cooking. And so that's where the egg chart came up because I wanted to talk about how proteins denature, but also how different parts of the egg actually behave quite different from each other. So the yolk behaves different from the white. And then when they're mixed together, they again behave quite different. And I went and looked back at the research that was done uh, to find out like what temperatures, because this chart basically takes you through the egg as an example, to show you how temperature influences proteins in the in an egg, and what it does in the in through this graphical representation, and I give, should give a shout out to the illustrator Matteo Riva who made all these wonderful illustrations for me right. uh, for the book. Um, you know, the chart basically shows you, hey, this is the egg yolk. This, <clears throat> This is the egg yolk. This is what's happening at a certain temperature. This is the egg white. This is what's happening at a certain temperature. And then when it's mixed, this is what's happening. So it's useful, and you just know this is the relevant information to walk away with. Yeah, well, this is in your chapter on uh, mouthfeel, and, and you, you break it down into chewers, crunchers, suckers, and schmooshers, <laughs> which I thought was very clever. Well, yeah, you, you remember over the years we've always we've always had a debate over over how you should time a, a soft boiled egg. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Do you, do you put do you, do you put it in hot water? If so, does it take significantly less time than if you started in cold water? And so on and so on and so on. And then we we finally got the answer from was it Kenji Love? Kenji Gonzalez. Ken, Kenji fi- finally gave us what's worked for us. It's worked for us for since, since we got his book. Yeah, that we, yeah that's it, something Kenji has really looked into. He's, he's very good, I think, don't you? Yeah, he, he um, did a, he I did a little thing on you. Um, he wrote the blog for this book. Yeah. Um, the the uh, chart that I'm looking at right now is the uh, texture boosters, which I think is very useful too, because you have the texture you want, and then how you can get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things that I realized. You know, we all, when I I've seen in cookbooks, and I've done this too in the past, where we always talk about um, you know boosting taste and aroma through different ingredients in the pantry. But what about textures? Because texture is such an important integral component of a recipe, but also of the experience. And so I decided that what if we make a little cheat sheet for people, which is what this table basically is, and you can go there, look at the texture you're looking for, and then see some of the common foods as examples, and then, you know, put that into your cooking. Yeah, that's become this texture thing has become very big with the advent of the air fryer because it doesn't Mm -hmm. guarantee you're going to get crispy. Yeah, I've been actually using the air fryer off later. I've been quite happy with it. I've been making crispy chickpeas, and it does such an amazing job. Oh, crispy chickpeas. I hadn't thought about that. I have an air fryer, but I've never used it. I guess I should start using it. (laughs) You you kind of lost me when you're dealing with aromas by chemical structure. My eyes kind of glaze over with the chemical structure. We don't really need that, do we? Sorry, I didn't hear you. I said my eyes kind of glazed over at the thought of chemical structures. I had a very bad experience in a chemistry class. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think, for, like for, for the purpose of the cookbook that I wrote, initially I did toy with the idea of putting chemical structures in and doing some graphical representation, but the closer I got to writing the book and the more involved I got and then taking... Um, feedback from different people uh, with different levels of experience in science, it just didn't feel useful to a cookbook, to this cookbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now at the, the, um, this section that interests me the most is the taste section where you run through these um, tastes. Um, we mm-hmm. were all taught what, that there was it five basic tastes or something? It was four, and then another one was added. Uh, I guess they discovered umami. But you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven tastes. Actually, six. I mentioned that the one from heat is not a taste. That's not a taste. Which one? Heat. Um, fieriness. That's not a taste. It's just included in there. But there is oh, right. Richness there. and fireness are, are, um, are not necessarily Richness is the new one that I've added in because um, there is a growing body of research which is looking at the taste of fats. And I felt because there were, it's controversial, some scientists agree and some don't, but because there's a growing body of research looking at um, you know, trying to discover what the taste receptor for fat might be. Um, and often in cooking, we also write about the taste of fats, you know, flavored fats and unflavored fats, neutral. Um, I felt it was important for me to kind of look at the future and bring this in here. Fireiness, on the other hand, which refers to the heat that comes from black peppercorns or chilies, that's more about the chemesthesis, which is basically an irritation of the nerves, which we've learned or rather evolved to love and appreciate. Well, how does this, they're trying to add another one called tingly. Was it tingly? No. Um, tingly would fall under chemesthesis. Okay, so that would be the, the fireiness. Yeah, because those all play on the nerves, and it's a response to um, the, how the nerves get excited at that point. Uh-huh. 
You know, I mean, I liked your your comments on uh, sort of um, genetics or uh, experience or something that inclines you to some of these tastes. Like, I don't have a sweet tooth, mm-hmm. but but I um, I was raised um, on Sicilian food, so I have a bitterness uh, preference. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that yeah, ever change, or are you just born with it? Um, so there are so definitely genetics plays a huge role in the appreciation of taste, and this has been extensively studied when it comes to bitterness and sweetness. Uh, some people like me um, have a genetic predisposition to actually avoiding bitter foods because of certain yeah, mutations in our DNA. And uh, that affects how our taste receptors appreciate bitterness. So I actually do not like the taste of beer, um, you know, coffee. I need to add a lot of milk in order to <laughs> drink coffee. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, like bitter green vegetables like radicchio, I don't really, I will not go out of my way to order them on a menu because I just mm-hmm. find them excessively unpleasant. Um, on the other hand, uh, there is this thing of culture where culture plays a huge role in exposing us to what we eat as children. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you grew up in a country or in a community where bitter foods are you know, given to you as a child, you will learn how to appreciate it early on. Um, so well, is it I true think, that there's a, the children have, have a preference for sweet just like right out of the right out in the, uh, the womb kind of <laughs> well one of the things that happens with uh, children is that they're born with an extremely large number of taste receptors and as they age when they come into teenhood they lose a significant portion of those receptors that's one of the reasons why children at an early age um picky eaters and as they grow older you know that sensitivity to taste decreases to so all these different tastes decreases so it actually becomes a much more fun experience as you grow up um, you know, I was talking to someone who owns a spice store in Oakland, and he told me every time parents bring their little kids in, the kids start to cry because of the smells are so intense and that they need to oh, get really? out. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I thought that was so fascinating. And again, it's that the same is. thing where the aroma receptors are just so much at that age that they start to decrease eventually. Eventually, eventually they become obs- they become obsessed with pizza. at what what age does that happen I wish I knew for for me it probably started pretty early (laughs) you know this um, did you learn a lot yourself doing this research for this book I did and I think for me that was the best part about this cookbook was while I was doing the research I was relearning a lot of things that I'd learned in school, but I was also adding new information to it, which I was then bringing to my cooking. And that was a lot of fun. Well, you know, I mean, it's really a unique cookbook. I mean, it's like, a, I wonder how you came up with this idea, but uh, I mean, you, you have this graph or chart or whatever you're going to call these, that I, mm-hmm. I was just flabbergasted. I was blown away by this thing where you apply your concepts to actual a recipe, you do have the star called Anatomy of a Recipe. Tell us about mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's so a brilliant the, idea. Oh, thank you. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to break down a recipe completely to its visceral components because that's how I develop recipes, and I'm pretty sure most people do. Um, and so I wanted to call attention to every stage of a recipe. And so I picked the first recipe in the cookbook, which was um, the roasted cauliflower with turmeric kefir. And then that which I love that, yeah. To um, show you how, you know, the different parts of the flavor composition are actually coming into play because it's much more realistic than if you see it happening in a, re- in a recipe. And so that's what I did with that recipe. So you see, um, you know, how your sights, your sound all play when you're cooking the spices. You know, you can hear the spices sizzle. You've got the color from the turmeric in there. The, the final garnish is also play on color. And then you've got these different textures. So all of that is called out throughout the recipe. And I've broken it by every stage at which the recipe is taking place. Well, I mean, it's just brilliant. And, and then, you know, we said this is a cookbook. And, I mean, 
the listeners don't underestimate the creativity and the brilliance of the recipes in this book. Um, you take all of these components, brightness, bitterness, saltiness, uh, sweetness, uh, savoriness, uh, richness, and, and fireiness, and, and you actually have recipes to match all those flavors. And, and they're brilliant recipes. And you first of all discuss how that particular um, quality works or characteristic works. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have all these, um, oh, you also have boosters, how to boost these things. But, right. And, and, yeah, and, and, then, and then you get into the actual recipes, which, as I said, are brilliant. I mean, I want to make you. these. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a couple of your favorites because um, listeners okay. really like the they get particular. Oh, I I fell in love with this chickpea salad with date and tamarind dressing because I happen to have on hand an enormous quantity of all three of those chickpeas, dates, and tamarinds. Mm-hmm. So it's tell us about that recipe. The it's a flexible salad because you could literally throw in anything that you have in the fresh produce aisle or what's in your refrigerator. Uh -huh. uh, you know, if you don't have chickpeas, you can add another kind of canteens in there. And then you've got the date and tamarind chutney, which basically provides a little bit of sweetness. And then the tamarind provides the acidity to the salad. And it's so easy to put together that you could have it as a full meal or as a side to a larger meal. And but this entire book, the recipes, I, I kept the recipes quite simple, but also try to illustrate the components of what I'm trying to teach, um, you know, with the science. And for me, that was the biggest challenge, but also the most fun. Well, you, you know, um, I also got a, um, you know, people send us stuff. So I also have like a lifetime supply of turmeric and, um, okay. uh, yeah, and um, which I, I froze. No, I, yeah, I froze that and ginger, and I froze that. I uh, kept keeping some fresh to use. But this, okay. this I'm, I'm dying to do this roasted cauliflower in turmeric, turmeric kefir. And you say you can use yeah. buttermilk instead of kefir? Yeah, you can use buttermilk instead of kefir, and I do that all the time. Uh, it's just that, you know, sometimes buttermilk is really surprisingly hard to find in grocery stores. And mm -hmm. if you buy plain kefir, it just works so beautifully. Um, and it's got this extra tanginess that I really like. Um, I think it's called the champagne of, um, of, the, dairy, of the fermented dairy world um, because it has a little bubbly uh, taste to it, uh, texture to it. So it works so beautifully in this savory dish. And then you're using chickpea flour to uh, thicken the sauce. And the chickpea flour will also give a very mild nuttiness to the dish because you're roasting it first and then folding it in with the yogurt, uh, with the kefir. And it's such a splendid gravy that um, all I do is I serve it with either some kind of bread or with rice. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, okay. Is there? Oh, sure. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Um, now, you you have, you were, um, your mother was from uh, Goa, which yeah. is, you have, you can see some of these Portuguese influences in here, mm -hmm. and, and you were raised in Mumbai, and then you left India and came to the United States and lived in the South. And then you moved to California. Now, that's a whole lot to uh, integrate, but you've done that. Yeah, it's actually, it's been fun. Uh, it's really taught me a lot about the country. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, did you find similarities? or I mean, they're so different, isn't it? It's, it's really interesting to, because a lot, this is something that I've noticed, and I remember a professor in school mentioned this once in a class, that if you look to the south of any country where it's warmer, people usually consume a lot of heat in their food. And this is true, um, you know, with the south here, there's a lot more passion. In the south, you see a lot more use of spices and, uh, you know, ingredients even like chilies and stuff like that. If you look at India, it's, 
India is kind of a different model, so to speak. But even if you look at other parts of the world, you'll see like a preference for warmer, more bolder flavors, usually in the south of different countries. And um, there are also similarities, though. Like, you know, in like meats and potatoes, it's such a common combination. But I've noticed across the world, it's just how people put them together. So in my first book, I did something in season. I did a uh, um, I did these things called potato chops where they have, you know, ground beef inside mashed potatoes and then they're pan fried. And then here, my husband's from the South and he loves steak and potatoes. Uh-huh. But again, it's, it's just so interesting that it's the same combination of main and chief ingredients. It's the flavors and the methods used to cook them that start to change. And that produces a different result, which I find so fascinating. Wow. Um, the... Um yeah, I mean, you've adapted to every place you go. I mean, you're very, very sure. liberal. Um, do you think that, I mean, uh, usually a lot of these recipes um, are kind of removed from the everyday home cooks, but everybody seems to be focusing more because that's the reality right now, home cooks. Um, mm-hmm. And we interviewed somebody who also was from... Um, South India and lived in the South. I forget what you called her book. Something about my South. It was something about colors. Oh, Asha yeah. Gomes. There yes, you go. yes. Yeah. We just interviewed her again about something. Yeah. Does she have a new book out? Probably. Um, she does. Often. She has a new book out. Yeah, I think we interviewed her about that. Um, tell us about, like, when you're negotiating with them, um, with all these different things you do, do you get a lot of feedback? I mean, you do a lot of, do. of food writing. You do a lot of um, media. Um, what kind of feedback do you get? And so what I do with my recipes is when I'm writing a book, I send the recipes. I put a call out on social media for people to participate in the recipe testing. And I make sure that the people who are testing the recipes aren't only from America, but from different parts of the world, because that gets me more feedback. And it also, I learn what kind of ingredients are available, uh, what what's accessible, and what their taste preferences are. And so that gives me a much more rounded, um, I guess, information from my uh, testers, recipe testers. And I found that to be so useful over the years. It's made me a better cook because I can listen and learn what their needs are. Um, You know, one of the things I've tried to do more consciously is to cut back on the number of special appliances because a lot of people just don't buy appliances and have no place to keep them. I mean, so many things out there now. I mean, I have things I've never even used people send me. I've never used my air fryer. (laughs) So, I, I think, you know, I, that's what I try to do with recipes is to make sure, and hopefully, you know, I achieve that, is to try and make sure that it meets different price points. So, you know, the, the ingredients are accessible to people and they can cook them, but also they're excited to make the recipes. Um, so that's my general approach, and it's always based on the feedback of what my testers come back with. And then when people cook your recipes, you kind of understand what they're going to go for because often certain ingredients are very cool to introduce, but often the consumer will not make that jump Mm -hmm. uh, to go get those ingredients. So that's something that I've been consciously paying attention to over the years for the different outlets that I've been writing for, just trying to understand what recipes will uh, or ingredients work with people and what don't. Well, I mean, if if people are all cooking now, um, they have certainly a lot of resources. I mean, we, we interviewed somebody who wrote a whole book on koji. I mean, I don't know how many home cooks do koji, but <laughs> I know chefs that really go nuts over it. Yeah, well, you do yeah, need Yeah, one of those things, like, you know, fermentation is also, I think people are willing to use yeast in baking or make yogurt. Um, not yeast and yogurt, but uh, bacteria and yogurt. But at the same time, it's, um, you know, a little bit beyond that. It is a little more involved for some people who just will not make that jump. So I think there needs to be a practical approach where you're trying to teach people new things, but also be a bit realistic. Yeah, it may actually be related to where you are in your life. I mean, I remember I always made my own yogurt. I can't even, even though I have more time now, I can't imagine making it. Yeah, well, it, anyhow, it um, 
next Sharma, as usual, it's, it's wonderful talking to you. Um, listeners, again, it's a next belt, N-I-K, Sharma, yeah. which, by the way, I found out is a fairly common um, name, Sharma. There are other people are, that yeah. come up. Both are very common. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really probably the most extraordinary um, fresh look at cooking that you're going to come across um, soon. It's called the Flavor Equation. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, Next up, another hot cookbook. Uh, This one's actually going to teach you to um, make... French dishes that you love, um, and, and and tells you how to do it simply, so that it's feasible. The book is called Plat du Jour, and we're going to be talking to the author Susan Herman Loomis about that. And um, just a, a hint: um, don't forget to check out her new, 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 newest venture, um, a video. YouTube called Dancing Tomatoes. <laughs> sounds like fun. I love that. Yeah, it's like, fun. Sounds like fun. It's fun. And this, Anyhow. This is, this is a charming lady and a very adventurous one. And she's in Paris. She's in, she's in Paris and she founded a cooking school. Yes. And, and please sign up for our cooking school because she's... <laughs> she, 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 needs, she needs all the help she can get. Exactly. Needless to say, this is not necessarily a good time, but it was a good time for her to buckle down and, and, do her and produce right. an amazingly fine cookbook that yes. will help you find your way around a francophile kitchen. Susan Herman Loomis, you are such an expert <laughs> on French cuisine, on cooking. Um, this book, Plot du Jour. French Dinners Made Easy, uh, is the latest of your cookbooks. And um, you have a cooking school. Uh, by the way, I wanted to ask you about the name of your cooking school. Uh, one, one of the children's books that I used to read to my son was en route at town. Uh, <laughs> no. No way. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it was funny, but I, I can't remember the details of it, but it was, it was hysterical. Stole, the illustrations somebody, were a riot. Somebody stole oh. the chef's chicken. Somebody stole the chef's chicken. This is oh, that was Seriously. <laughs> yeah, look it up. It's funny. I will. I've never heard that before. And then oh, that's time, great. When he finally got his chicken back and, uh, and cooked it, everybody said, bravo, or something like that. Some, something oh. very French to congratulate. To congratulate the chef on producing a chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everybody. Oh, that's great. I don't know how many times I, I read that. Adam just loved it. I read it over and over again. So that was a while ago. Here's a, here's a question for you, and this is just a, a checkpoint, if you like, to say how how has the EU affected France or has it not? How you, has? How has how has the European Union affected France? And and I'll add to that. We used to love to go to the Rue Claire and, yes. and, and look at all the wonderful b- birds and fish that were hanging on the stalls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are they still there? Not on the Rue Claire. I will say that Rue Claire, I also remember it as quite a vivid market street, and yes. it still is a market street, but nothing like it was before. So okay. where you have to go now... To see the birds, the feathered birds, and the wild hare, and everything in the autumn, yeah, are the are the street markets that you know the the yeah. markets in certain neighborhoods that where right. the people the vendors come in from the country, right? Got it. Well, you yeah. have a lot in this book about um, the influence of country. Um, yes. Let's just start. I mean, there, there's so much information in the book. I don't know where to start altogether. <laughs> but, uh, but mainly, if, if you love French food, you're going to find lots to love in this book. Uh, let's start with the definition of the plat du jour. Plat du jour is the dish of the day, literally. It's the dish of the day. And it really indicates in a restaurant or a cafe or brasserie setting, it's part of what's called a formule, which is a menu. So 
every day the dish of the day changes. And it's always based on what the chef or the cook finds either at the market, sometimes it can be what's left from the day before, created, turned into something else that's equally or delicious or better. And um, it's the concept of the home cook or the farm cook cooking what was best that day for the main course. Now, what's the difference between that and the menu marché? Well, the menu marché is is a it's a much more contemporary term for one thing. I mean, it Uh wouldn't have occurred to anybody to say menu du marché because uh, unless they were at a market or um, but but it's kind of the menu du marché is what's what's from the market. So the plat du jour is it somehow the plat du jour has more traditional resonance because it's it's sort of those comforting homey dishes that might have been made more than you know more than once whereas the menu du marché is a restaurant's take on what can I do that's different every day that somebody hasn't seen that I'll do you know every day it will be very different whereas a plat du jour might be bœuf bourguignon on Sunday you know uh hachis parmentier on Monday so it would much more traditional and homey is the plat du jour. But, but both of them are a set menu. So you, you get... Well, plat du, jour is, plat du jour is a dish. Menu de marché is a menu. Got it. Plat Got du it. jour Thank is you. just one element of a menu. Got it. Yeah. But there are other Thank things you. that usually come with it, right? Well, which is why I could have legitimately, I could have desserts, I could have appetizers, I yeah, could have vegetables. So that you take the plat du jour, it could be a one-dish meal. But if you're French, you're never going to have a one-dish meal. Yeah. You're going to have an appetizer, you're going to have a dessert, you might have a salad. I was, yeah. I was, in, I was intrigued to note that one of the chefs who wrote one of the blurbs on the back. On oh, the back Eric. Of the book, you could say we, Eric. We, we went to Eric Frichon when, when he was a restaurant that did plat yeah, du jour. It was called Frichon. It was yeah. called Frichon. And then yeah. after that, he went big time. Yeah, yeah but did. we like the old time. bistro place better. I mean, the, the well, his, love that I place. just think his his food is fabulous. He's one of my most admired chefs, really. Yeah. Well, we loved the little place, you know, and we we went to um, uh, the Bristol, the Bristol. Yes. And, yes. And yes. and, and uh, it was just so different. I don't think I adjusted. My expectations to well, it's the I mean he's it. yeah he's in the stratosphere there, but but obviously that's what he wanted, you know, because mm-hmm. he's so good. I mean, I make recipes of his that I had at the Bristol eight million years ago, you know. Yeah, I still do because they're so they're so doable, mm-hmm. and his combinations are just so great. Yeah. yeah now, how did you end up in France, in Paris or? France and, and well, I ended, cooking school. I ended up in France because I got a. Um, I studied cooking in the early '80s, and and I just fell in love with everything. And I uh-huh. stayed for four years, and then I went back to the U.S. for ten years, kind of to start my career. And then I got a contract to write the French Farmhouse Cookbook, and that brought me back to France in the early '90s. Okay. And um, I supported my family with cookbooks. And then, then of course, that situation changed a little bit. And I thought, well, you know, I'd always given cooking demonstrations and cooking classes, so I opened a cooking school. Say called En Route I'm going to ask you yeah. the same question I asked Anne Willem. I said, why, 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 how, on, how on earth would you think that French people would go to a cooking school run by an English woman? <laughs> I didn't. I did not ever aim my school at French people, and I lived in a small French city. And my idea always was to provide the insider experience to Anglophones. Always. Okay. I and in fact, you know, I would have gladly taught my French neighbors, and they would have loved to have learned, but they would never, never have have done that. You know, I mean, we shared <laughs> lots of information. Yeah, but you know, Wait. a year ago I went on sabbatical from my cooking school, and I'm—I was a stroke of luck that I did because every cooking school is closed now. 
Oh, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know some some cooking schools have gone virtual, though. And and we interviewed. Many. Yeah, and we interviewed um, this woman who uh, runs Pie Camp, and she's a cookbook writer, too, in Seattle. Oh, um, uh, uh, Kate. uh, Kate McDermott. No, no, no. Yeah, Kate McDermott. Yeah, she's yeah, she's a, a very close colleague of mine. Oh, she's wonderful. We've known her for yeah. years. We knew her late yeah. husband, her ex husband. I don't know how to John, describe John her. Raleigh? John. <laughs> well I'm we from you know, I'm from I'm from Seattle. So John oh, and I, I were good, good friends, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just of course I I can't believe he's I haven't had a big shipment of oysters since he died, but anyhow. Oh. Um and and you're redhead. I'm so envious. I always wonder I'm redheaded. I am. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Well, you know, in France, uh, in the Middle Ages, if you had red hair, it was the mark of a devil. You had a hard time staying alive. Well, there are a lot of redheads in France. A friend of mine moved to Provence, and she was a tall, thin um, redhead. And um, people just, they viewed her as a monarch, practically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she just was so tired. Uh, if you were in Australia and you had red hair, they called you Bluey. <laughs> Why is that? Why that. is that? Because people with red hair mostly have blue eyes. Thanks. To, oh, that's thanks. true. That, <laughs> that sounds very Australian. Thanks. Well, yeah. you know. Thanks, thanks, thanks to Monk, Monk, Monk Mendel and his, and his theories of evolution. Yes, there you go. Well, I started a new project that is kind of a virtual, will soon be a virtual online cooking school. It's called Dancing Tomatoes. Oh, that's so I invite you. I, yeah, I invite you to go to the website, which is www.dancingtomatoes.com, and uh, it's a project that I just have launched, and it is kind of a way to, well, it's a way for me to get my teaching chops, you know, to keep keep teaching and trying to share what I've always been trying to share, and and um and you know I have great plans for it. We'll see. We'll see. It's oh, very fun. On that, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, I started to tell you, Kate uh, went from, you know, she had that um, pie cottage where she did her yes. little pie camp and stuff like that. And, and, and she was never very into this, any of the technology or anything like that. But she's been absolutely highly motivated by the fact that she is now reaching out into people in, in Asia's kitchens and stuff. She's loving yeah. it. No, yeah. she's done extremely well, and she's a lovely person. Absolutely. Isn't she wonderful? Yeah. She's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, I really, and her pies are beautiful. Yeah, we, well. We, we've not had one of her pies, but we, we, we assumed they were beautiful. Well, the, well the they're beautiful. The pie camp is gorgeous. Actually, yeah, I haven't pies. had any of her pies either, but her photographs are beautiful. She works really, really hard, and she's so enthusiastic. Right. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. nice. Yeah. Nice, nice yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know, um, Susan. I I had eight years of French, and I never came oh. across the term astuce. <laughs> oh, oh, it's funny. Well, it's it's uh, it's kind of I don't know if I'd say it. It's not something you would learn in a French class for sure. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much about a language that you just learn as you live in a place or. So, but honestly, it's it's a term that's used all the time, and and it's a little trick, and it can apply to cooking, it can, you know, can apply to driving, it can apply to figuring out the bureaucracy. You know, you have to know the estus to really be able to get along, and that's the spirit in which I use it because France is a country where you've got to know the tricks to be able to get along, right, and the only yeah, way you learn the tricks is by stumbling, and then somebody says, oh, well. Do this. This is how we do it here, and that's enough juice. <laughs> that's true. You know, for, I mean, yeah. for, for whatever time I've spent in France, I can tell you that's true. Yeah, and, and everything. And, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely everything from how to pump gas to, you know, to how to get your your papers to all kinds of things, and it's it's just a funny thing. And maybe we have it in the U.S., but I don't know. I don't know if we do. I don't think we do. Hack. It's very like you know. It's very hard to get information in France. Very, and very difficult. So, yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to tell you. Nobody wants to tell you anything. Yeah. Well, they really don't. They really don't, except for chefs. They'll they'll share their food with you. You know, they'll share your their recipes with you. Oh, that's People nice. will share their recipes. So that's that's a nice thing. 
and they'll right. talk about their lives with you. So that's you know it, it takes a while. I mean you 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 have to kind of know things before you go in. But um, I just find the French always generous with food, anything to do with food. Funny the last the last time we were at the Rue Claire was it must have been it must have been close to a holiday because we went. Remember you went into. You went into a butcher's shop, and they and and you pointed to the turkey, and they thought you wanted the they thought she wanted the feathers. Oh yeah, no. (laughs) Oh really? It was one of those. I can't remember how that happened. It was one of oh that's funny. It was one of those shops. They had all the feathers. Yeah, in like a, a compartment behind the counter, and he grabbed this whole bunch of feathers, put them in the back. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I've never seen that. I've never yeah. seen that. That's so funny. This is one, one of the was... things I like, by the way, um, is the your, besides these uh, tips and hints, is um, your take on seasonality. I mean, every book I get that has seasonality in it, but you apply it not only to uh, produce. But you apply it to seafood and meat. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the French—it is how the French cook, and it is part of their DNA that that you know they either grew up in a farm where they only had seasonal food, or when they right. go to the market, they're looking. They know they're looking for what's in season, and so you go to a market here, and you can, you know, I could I could buy tomatoes tomorrow at the market. I'm going early, and but but most people who are who are even moderately serious about what they eat, they we go to the farmer stand, and there is only seasonal food, and that's what they look for, and that's what they're waiting for, mm-hmm. so that every menu revolves around whatever is available right now from the soil. And, you know, it's just a phenomenal way to eat because it you win on every level because you get more flavor. It costs less than if you're buying something exotic, out of season. And, you know, mostly there's this whole repertoire of recipes that are built around every single ingredient. So you just pull from this repertoire. And it just gives a wonderful harmony to the year. To well, know I mean, that most people ate like that until recent history. Absolutely. Every different um, ethnicity or country so, yeah. or whatever. So, you, know, you, you remember the time when we, the first time we went to Chez Lamy Louis, and it was <laughs> that was the hoot. It, it was it was the beginning of asparagus season, so we so we paid, <laughs> so we paid a month's rent. For, yes. For, for her, well, for I her I insist, green, I insist on ordering this asparagus. It was green. It wasn't even white asparagus. Yeah. But I had the, the ladies' menu with no prices on it. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I have Peter kicking me under the table. Well, no, oh, no. no. That, that, that was a sketch in London when I did that. Yeah. That was, I, well, you know, to talk about green and white asparagus, it's really funny because white asparagus is sort of the thing you dream about, and yet green asparagus is so much more popular here now, I oh, would yeah. say. And and really, I think it's so much more flavorful and oh, so I much like more fun to cook better. with. I mean, I love white asparagus, but, you know, the way the French eat it is, you know, they boil it, which I would argue with, but... Long then time. they just serve it. You kind of serve it plain, and it's delicious, or with a vinaigrette or something. But green asparagus is so much more flavorful. Yeah, and I you, think we were in, we, you, were in Bel- we were in Belgium once at the start of white asparagus season. But, 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 but by then we knew we, we 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 could only order a small portion. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's very expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I like the green better too. Um, yeah. I, I see. I'm looking at the, the photographs are wonderful in this book, by Thank the way. You. Thank and you. And I'm looking at at this one that is a peculiar question. But what is it with French and radishes? I'm looking at the radishes. Oh. <laughs> well, There's, if you've ever about had, French. if you've ever had a French radish, it is the first, really the yeah, first the fresh vegetable of spring. So we've been eating leeks and celery root and beets and carrots and cabbages and, you know, winter lettuce. And then all of a sudden there's a radish. And it's just like, oh, my God. And it, they're <laughs> so good. 
They're so good. And so you get your butter and you get your baguette and you get your fleur de sel and you just go after it. And I honestly could make a meal of that. And, and every dinner party you go to, there are radishes. Uh, you know, yeah. and now... Now the radish season, it used to be just a couple months in the spring. Now it goes, it goes well into late summer. Well, they grow the winter radishes. Yep, yep, we've got them all. In fact, I was at the market today, and there are all kinds of winter radishes. They're beautiful. They are pretty, aren't they? Yeah, they're wonderful, and I no, love radishes. Yeah, I mean, I actually get that feeling of suddenly it's... it's Winter's gone in the spring when I get the first season's radishes. And, you know, um, we have black radishes here that are very, very, they're, they're very typical, especially in the country. But, you know, they're a really good substitute. They're hotter than a red radish, but yeah, they're still they're really hot. good. Yeah. They're pretty hot. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I really love poultry, and so I love your chapter. You devoted a whole chapter on poultry. Thank and you. I yeah, just I can't did. wait to test out some of these recipes. Oh, you know, it's funny because I was looking through it today, and one of my favorites is the chicken with walnuts. You know, oh, it's I was so simple. At that one. Yeah. It's so simple and so wonderful. Just wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, there was this woman um, in the, the northeast part of Pennsylvania that she was French, and, and she, um, she raised uh, poultry. Oh, wow. And yeah, and pigs, the two things oh, that she wow. raised. But yeah. she, she, they're all artisanal and in such small quantities oh. um, that she would only uh, sell to uh, chefs. Only chefs yeah. would like that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, mm-hmm. one of the uh, chefs that we do brought us uh, one of the chickens with the blue feet. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. the, like the yes. poulet de Bresse, yeah. It yeah. was very similar. Her product was very similar to, to the breast chicken. It was, yeah, yeah, it wasn't breast, but it was similar. It was a grown well, ear, you know. Yeah, well, it's a, probably the same species, but you can't call it poulet de Bresse unless it's been raised in Bresse. Oh, sure. No, I understand. Yeah. Well, it was still exceptional. Oh, uh, that's and, wonderful. And the, the other thing, um, we're always trying to think of new things to do with the duck breasts. And you spend oh. a lot of time on that. You can't get wrong yeah. with duck breasts, can you? Well, you know, duck breast is sort of the um, uh, under, it's overlooked in a way. It's, it's to me, the finest meat. And it's you can do a, a thousand things with it. You know, I just love it. I love it. And it's fairly available in the U.S. Yes. Now, a friend, a friend of ours is a We got it from D'Artagnan. Hold, hold and we get it. Let yeah. me say something. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. A friend of ours who is a chef bought a bought a chick a duck press. Oh wow! Oh yeah. To make to make um, yeah, to make the Rouen duck, the the duck uh, au sang, yeah, yeah, the blood in it, yeah. I don't know if we have it once. He called us immediately to come and try it. Oh, and fun. it was a whole That's production, you know. It's a big and was production. it wonderful? Was it wonderful? Oh, yeah, it was yeah. good. He's good at everything, but I don't yeah. know how many of those he would have he, sold he, at he this restaurant. He served it with, for two people, right? Now? I think he had oh, one, wow. With one duck through the whole process of making pressed duck. And he, he, oh, he wow. served it for two people. And I think it was... It was like $65 or something. It was, it yeah, well, that's not very much. <laughs> <laughs> not not, not yeah. very much for a pressed duck, I guess. No, yeah. no, no. I've never yeah. made it, but it's, you know, it's a Tour d'Argent special um, special dish, and it's very special in Rouen also. Oh, I didn't, I didn't. I, I in Normandy, that, yeah. I guess that's yeah. from when you yeah. mentioned the name. Too bad Albert yeah. Roux died, huh? Albert Roux. Yeah. London. I don't know. He he was in he was he and his he and his brother were in London forever and ever. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm time. sorry. I, I don't. I hate to say, but I I'm not aware. Yeah. Well, well, his, uh, well he, he his was, brother owned the Waterside Inn. Well, the family. Oh, did, okay. The French, okay. The French probably thought French probably thought they were traitors. No, <laughs> I don't think so. It's just you know they're not a, they're not. It's not a big name. It's not a big name here. Right. So I I really wasn't aware that that about that. Yeah. They, they made a big they made a big name for themselves in in Britain, and uh, they they've had um, three Michelin stars at this place called the Waterside Inn, 
for something yeah. like 20, 28 or 29, or maybe by now 30 years. Wow. Wow. Well, that, um, they, they came on that tide, but the, the guy was, it was Cezanne, what? Raymond Blanc, you're talking about? Raymond Blanc. Yeah, yeah. Raymond Blanc. Yeah. Uh, they, they were yeah. ahead of Raymond. They were ahead of Raymond. He's a character, yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another surprise I had was, you say, the bouillabaisse um, does not traditionally include shellfish. Yes, it was fish. Amazing. It was fish, and so, you know, over the years, of course, it adapts and changes, but it was really what was left over uh, after a day of fishing, really, really, truly. And home to Marseille, right? Home in Marseille. uh, In Marseille, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we were in Spain, we were in um, Valencia, was it? No, I can't remember which trip it was. But anyhow, um, we went out to... uh, a place that specialized in nothing but uh, paella. And it's, it's then that I learned what's authentic and what is not authentic in, with paella. Yes. You know, well, I mean, all, we, yeah, I mean, all these dishes began as peasant dishes. They just did. So it was what people had. Yes. And, of course, the, these dishes are so exquisite because they are the best of everything. But they were simple dishes. All the plat du jour in this book are simple, simple, authentic dishes. Well, this, I mean, this is, here's one that, I mean, I just read the title of the recipe, and I've got a hankering for this. Smoked herring and potato salad with oh, mustard vinaigrette. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that you know that is on every cafe menu in France yeah. and every table north of Lyon. You know, my friends make it all the time, and they're good salads and they're less good salads. But that one is amazing, amazing, oh, and it's it. so simple. The well, herring run, the herring run in the English Channel is a huge big deal in in Normandy. I mean, people oh, buy. Sure. They buy tons of it, and they pickle it, and they, you know, they preserve it. And then, you know, it's it, it's something Americans don't think about that much, but it's economical, and it's so good. Now, we we went what? once to the to the fish restaurant in the Grand Central. Oh, I was just going to introduce that. Tell us about and it. They, and they, they, that was they fun. Told, they told us that the first, by tradition, the first herring landed goes to the Queen of the Netherlands. Yeah. And the, second, and the second one goes to the Grand Central Fish Market. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's So you funny. have to that's eat funny. it. And you have to hold it up by its tail yeah, and you know, yeah. stick it in your mouth. We had, we well, had you know, I was just... On how you eat it. I was just in Amsterdam last weekend, and I stay near a fish market, and the first thing I usually do is go get herring. I just love it. <laughs> I love it. But you can't bring it home with you. It just doesn't translate... No, I guess not. No, uh-uh. No, um, you have an interesting story also. You have a lot of interesting stories, I must say. Uh, listeners, you've got to get this cookbook. <laughs> the your, the um, origins of curry in, in French. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. it's funny because there's a lot of curry used in, in um French cooking, and it's kind of a one-off. I mean, you think, what the heck is it doing? Exactly. Um, but, uh, but that little story really illuminated it. it for me, you know? Yeah, well, I thought that was a wonderful story. So, um, you, of course, um, you have a section on meat, which is very important, um, in, in, to, um, the French, um, especially lamb. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And pork. You have a whole chapter on pork. Well, pork we is, the, is the meat of France. I mean, it just is, yeah. you know. They do have they do have that steak, the very thin steak. Yes, they all, have all, steak, all, but pork the is their thing. Pork is their thing, really. Yeah, I liked your story about how the pigs used to be used for measuring lamb. Yeah, <laughs> is that interesting? Yeah, I think it's you really great stories in this book. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank and you. The, and the recipes are, are, are just wonderful. And um, Susan swears all of you can get the book and make any one of these dishes. I so promise you. check it out. <laughs> well, thank you so very much. 
Well, again, it's plot du jour, uh, Susan Loomis. And um, best luck and success, not even luck because it's a fine uh, product. Much success with this book, Susan. Oh, thank you so very much. I'm delighted to have spoken with you. And we, we hope you'll be back, able to come back into the school very soon. Thank you so much. Thank well, I guess that's another wrap. Um, I'm always amazed at how wonderful the people in this industry are and creative and, and strong. And, boy, it's been hit hard by this pandemic, but uh, they're carrying on. Yeah, and we're carrying on and hear it on the menu radio. We hope you are wherever you are. And, and until the good times are back. Bye-bye. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll also see you next week.